You're listening to the Spiro Avenue Show. If you like what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can also watch our full shows and clips and highlights on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you for watching, and I hope you enjoy. The Detroit Pistons are doing the Macarita three feet above rock bottom. We see it again and again and again. They have been absolutely terrible since 2008 and have never drafted higher than seventh overall. It's almost impossible to do because they refuse to bottom out. I don't care what Rod Beard says. I don't care what all the Pistons slappies say. This team has never bottomed out and they've never done this thing the right way. So they, you can whine about bad luck in the draft. That's certainly been the case. Bad luck with the lottery. Bad luck with the guys they do take and the guys taken right above them. All valid, all true. It's all there. I buy all of it. But I lose a little bit of sympathy for you when you don't do this thing the right way. The Pistons have refused to bottom out, and they're getting exactly what they deserve. Another seventh overall pick where they're just buying up a lottery ticket and hoping for the best and hoping to hit one of those Kawhi Leonard-type picks. Good luck with that. They are forever in purgatory. The flip side is the Detroit Tigers, who, for all my frustration with them, for all uh, the peril they have caused me and the rest of Detroit Tigers Nation and anybody that cares about this organization, for whatever we want to say, they have finally done things the right way in the past few years in terms of they're going to bottom out, they're going to get the top draft picks possible, stockpile the farm system, and go from there. That brings in my man, Tony Paul from the Detroit News, who I want to talk about this rebuild and assess where they're at. Uh, I'm not so sure if I buy the way they're going. I buy the strategy. I like what they're doing. They're not half in like the Pistons. The Detroit Tigers are bottoming out. The question is, will they spend when they get back near the top and the the stockpile is built in the farm system? I don't know. I'm bringing in Tony Paul from the Detroit News. In my opinion, the best sports writer in Detroit. In the house, Tony Paul, welcome. What's up, man? I didn't know where you were going with that intro on rock bottoming. I thought you, that was going to refer to me in some regard. <laughs> it was not going to refer to you in any regard. I don't know that you've hit rock bottom in, in, in any way. I, I certainly hope not. You sure no. seem to have your act together, Tony. No. But it, my thing is, I, I was so frustrated, and I've been frustrated with the Pistons. I'm like a, a distant Pistons fan. You know, I kind of gave up on the NBA as a whole after the 2006 NBA Finals travesty where Dwayne Wade was getting breathed on and it was a foul. I think that title was stolen from the Mavericks. It's a whole other story. But I, I still like to see things run competently in Detroit just on principle. I hate what they've done. I think they've done everything wrong. They refuse to bottom out. They, their goal is to win somewhere between 36 and 44 games every year and get blasted in the first round. The Tigers, conversely, have done what I think they finally needed to do was just clear the cupboard get these contracts off the books, empty the decks, start drafting in the top five consistently, stockpile the farm system, and then get things going. We're, I don't know, 65, 75% of the way there, somewhere there, not in terms of the finished product, but in terms of the rebuild process before you turn the gears on. I mean, talk to me, where do you see this rebuild? How do you assess it? How are they doing? How is it going? Uh, It's it's still too early to tell, which is weird, because like you said, you said it's 65, 70%, I would argue it's even a little bit past that. But um, uh, the one beauty about baseball, though, is compared to the Pistons, is that if you lose in baseball, you're going to get the number one draft pick. So that's a plus. You know? So there's no lottery, which I like that fact about baseball. Um, so they've been able to stockpile these guys um, with the, you know, two of the last three. Um, I think they're in pretty good shape. I, I think that they're about a year. I've, I've said that I think they're going to be spending – Maybe as soon as this off season, but no later than next off season. Um, I think the pitchers are ready. Um, I think you you've seen Mize come up, you've seen Scooble come up. You're not going to make any judgments, of course, on one start. Um, although Mize's stuff, I think we would all agree, looks pretty legit. Um, but you know they got other guys coming in, Fiedo, and you know just a, a host of guys, uh, Manning, and you know Burrows. They're hoping eventually. So. Um, I think once they get the pitchers all up here, it's going to be time to spend, whether that's this offseason or next offseason. The question is, Chris Illich has said when the time comes, he's going to spend. We don't 
we have nothing to go on but his word at this point because he hasn't had to do it. So we're going to find out really quickly here whether he means it, whether he's actually going to go spend the money. Uh, because as soon as these pitchers are up, you have to spend. It's time to win. I mean, when these guys are here, because that's the future. And the clock is starting really already now that they're up here. I mean, right. I, I, I think the time to start spending is next offseason and really the next I would, two. I would agree. I, I, I think we're at that point where, you know, no one's expecting you to go win the World Series now, but we saw 2003, worst team ever. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not counting the expansion Mets that were one game worse. But it's 2003 Detroit Tigers are the worst baseball team in the history of, of the sport. And by the way, they would agree with you. Well, yeah, well I don't <laughs> most know. Most guys on that team would agree with well, you. Well, that's good. At least they're honest because that was the most pathetic display I've ever seen on a pro sports field over the course of the season. They were awful. I mean, like Kevin Witt is your cleanup guy. It was embarrassing. But that was the worst team ever. But they spent a little. They hit on a couple draft picks that, you know, they benefited from that, that bad run, you know, Verlander being the, the key one. And three years later, they're in the World Series as not just in the World Series, but as prohibitive favorites. Now they lost. It was a disaster. I think they were victims of their own success in the ALCS. If they don't sweep, they probably win the whole thing. Again, another story. But the point is, we've seen this rapid turnaround before, but it was not. There's nothing fluky about it. Mike Gillich spent. You know, we all know that we are on Chris Illich's word here. If you had to guess, I know you're not buddies with them. (laughs) If you had to guess. Do you buy that Chris Illich is going to spend? Not to Mike Illich levels, but to a mid to high market level. Um, I don't know. No, you don't know. I, so you don't have faith, though. Uh, no, I, I mean, we haven't seen it. And I, I don't, you know, he's not his father. Uh, and that's, you know, look, there are very few owners out there that are going to go spend like Mike Illich did to the point of losing money. Um, you know, owners are in the business to make money, and he, uh, Mike Illich didn't care about making money. He was one of the rare billionaires that felt like he had enough money and he could lose money on his baseball team if it meant winning. Uh, I don't see his, his son having that kind of passion. I think his son's going to run it more like a business. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, again, we, we're going on his word here. Um, and if, you know, you want to take the Illich, Christopher Illich and company on their word, you know, you'd have a, a you know, nice 50 block revitalization downtown, you know, that they never li- that they haven't lived up to. So, I mean, it, honestly, if you want to go by the word, I think we're a little too premature to just assume that he's going to follow through on, on spending on the tiger. And this is why you're smart, because you were in my brain, because that's exactly where I was going to go. And we have beaten the District Detroit thing to death on this show in every iteration. Back when I had just the audio, back when I had the the small little camera in the corner, now with Roberto's expensive TriCaster system that he set up. I've talked about this ad nauseum, that the one thing that we have uh, to go on with Chris Illich in terms of uh, faith in his word is when he sat in front of city council and said, if you give me this tax break, if you give me this help on, on the arena, Here's what I'll deliver. And he holds up these beautiful artist renderings of this palatial downtown, this beautiful district with shops and movie theaters and bars. And it's a hustle and bustle downtown with people walking the streets and holding their their young child's hand as they walk across the arena. None of that came true. You have not just parking lots, but even the parking lots are kind of ugly. They're just surface lots that they cleared. It's not. They make money. Yeah. They're just, they're just re- revenue generating sources. So the one big promise that he has made not only was not kept, but was not even efforted to be kept. There, there was no like uh, red tape that they're just trying to get through that held them up. They have not even uh, reached an approximation of their promise no. on that district. So what faith are we supposed to have that they're going to deliver the goods? I guess at the end of the day, what choice do you have? I mean, you don't. I mean here he, we are. He owns the team. He's going to make the decisions that he wants to make. But, I mean, that is the only thing we have to go on with Chris Illich since he took over this empire of sorts. Um, and uh, he's failed miserably, uh, you know, to the point of he doesn't even really hide it. Like, yeah, we're, gonna, we're not, not. You know, it used to be we're, we have the plans to. We we still have the plans to build this district, and I think the last time they were quoted or the OH company was quoted, it's like, yeah, we're not really working on that right now, you know. So it's like they're not even hiding the fact that you know they're just letting that go. So we'll see what happens. If if you take him at his word, though, 
It's going to happen, I think, over this offseason and next offseason. I think it'll be a gradual thing. It's not going to be a let's go out and buy all our free agents at once. I think it'll be somewhat, it should be similar to the model that they had in 2003, where 2004 they started spending a little bit of money, spent a little bit more in 2005, a little bit more in 2006, and bam, they're in the World Series. I think that's going to be the process. It sh- at least it should be the process here, because even when all these kids are up, the pitching staff's not going to be the best. It's not going to be Mount Rushmore from the Braves years right away. I mean, it's going to take time for these kids to get acclimated. So I think you, you go out and you get a little help next offseason, and you get a little bit more of the following offseason, and I think this team could be and should be, frankly, a contender in 2022. I think that has to be the goal. I think 2022 is reasonable given... That's a six-year rebuild. Yeah. That's, that's a long time. I think that I think the fans have been sufficiently patient to expect something. I'm not saying win the World Series, but maybe be three games out on July 5th. No. You know, just you know, in there. Mm-hmm. Have it be interesting. I mean, everyone was going nuts uh, when this team was 9-5 and five or whatever right. it was this year. It's like, you know, I sat here with uh, Mike Sullivan for our first show with the new format, and I said I wasn't buying it. You know, he said he's probably not buying it either, but uh, he was going to enjoy it. I think that was the line most people took. The point is people are desperate. I think right. people are ready for it. I think they're beyond ready for it. And the fact is this whole thing would be easier to stomach if you could pop in that championship DVD, if DVDs were still a thing, from 2012 or 2006 or 2013 or any of the years that this team had the best team in the league and didn't get it done. Going back to that, you were really in it at that point. You were covering the team regularly. You were in that clubhouse often Mm -hmm. during those years. I thought the most interesting thing that came out in that whole period of all the things that came out, and there was a lot of uh, media things with Prince Fielder, with Victor Martinez, talking about the fans and whatnot. The thing no one talks about is Octavio Dotel, who was here for like five minutes, came out and had some telling quotes about how laissez-faire the team was, how the team's best players didn't burn the win. They were just a little goofy in the clubhouse, obviously implicating Miguel Cabrera, clearly. I mean, anyone that, that read the quote at the time, it was obvious he was talking about Cabrera chiefly, among other. You were around that team. If you had to diagnose what went wrong there, why they didn't get it done for all the talent they had, I hate to relive it, but you were, you were there. What, what's your take on it? Why didn't that team get it done at least once? <laughs> well, I don't buy necessarily that. Um, the the loose clubhouse thing, you know, when teams win the World Series, you know, they, they write books about them years later, and it, they write these great stories about how great the clubhouse chemistry was, and then if the team sucks, they write about how bad the team chemistry was. Every team's going to have some rocky moments in a clubhouse. When you throw 25 guys in there, they're not all friends. I mean, you look at Justin Berlander, but, you know, one of the best pitchers, probably, you know, maybe the second or first, or the best pitcher of our generation, and uh, he didn't have a lot of friends on that team. I mean, he's just not a guy that was that people that teammates gravitated toward. But would you want him to pitch Game Seven of the World Series for you? Probably, you know. So I, I think the chemistry stuff is overrated. I think they lost because they could never build a bullpen. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. 2006 to 2012 were fluky. Um, I mean, I'll I'll go to you know I'll go to my grave believing they were better than the 2006 Cardinals. Obviously, they won. The Cardinals won 83 games that year. And, I, st- I believe they were better than the Giants. And I believe that the best team the Tigers had out of all of them was 2013. And I believe that they beat the Red Sox in game two, they win the World Series. So it was just such a fluky thing how all those worked out. Um, but I think if you're going to diagnose why they didn't win, I think it was, I think it was the bullpen. And there was something. I mean, I think I, 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 chemistry stuff is a great story. Um, you know, but let, I mean, look at the, you know, 86 Mets won the World Series and they were a bunch of buffoons. I mean, I mean, absolutely crazy, crazy guys, you know, uh, and they won a World Series. Um, so I don't know. Chemistry stuff, I think, is good to talk about, but I, I think it comes down to talent and they had the talent to get it done. They were flawed in the bullpen and it just so happened that every time they could get beat in that aspect, they got beat. It shows you being the ultimate pragmatist because for a sports writer to gravitate away from the juicy, salacious, well, Skip Bayless headline, yeah, it's, I mean, it's difficult. Look, no, I mean, look, I mean, the team, you know, that's just fun to talk about. And there was some guys in that clubhouse that, uh, that weren't, that, that just weren't, you know, overly liked. I, I don't think Prince had a ton of friends and I don't think he helped himself with the comments he made so quickly after. Was it uh, 13 or was it 12? It was 13, right? At, right after they lost the Red Sox, he made those comments and he was shipped out you know, not long after. Um, I don't think a lot of people in the clubhouse appreciated that. Um, I, I think that, like I said, Verlander, I don't think was, was 
you know, among the people that really had a lot of friends in there. I think Delvin, I mean, Delvin Young was in that clubhouse. I mean, nobody liked Delvin Young. <laughs> but Delvin Young was MVP of one of those postseason series, you know. So you don't like the guy, but he got, he got you to a, you know, he got you. The uh, Yankees uh, really didn't like Delvin right. Young. I mean, he got you to a World Series, essentially. It helped you get to the World Series. So um, it's fun to talk about, and it's fun to kind of observe and hear the stories. Um, but I, I think that when it comes down to 2006 to 2012, I think that it was fluky. They, I think they were the best team. 2013, I think that, you know, they, uh, the bullpen that has been a disaster for this franchise for 20 years um, hurt them in one inning. And I think that cost them a World Series. You had a, a couple, I mean, I, I don't want to say run-ins. You, issues with David Price? How would you categorize that or characterize yeah, it? Yeah, it wasn't really, it was one because he never, he never really spoke to me again. What was the uh, issue with David Price? Uh, and, and the thing is, I like David Price. I mean, I thought, you know, he was a great addition. I thought he was going to help the team. It wasn't a big deal. But if you remember when they acquired him, um, he was off to a good start with the Rays. And he had come up with this new philosophy um, that, uh, and this was 14, I guess, right? 2014. Uh, Brad Ausmus. Um, So when they acquired him, um, he had this philosophy that, he had just come up with that he wanted to get a batter out in three pitches or less. That was his goal. He didn't care if it was a strikeout in three pitches or if you got him to pop up, but three pitches or less, he wanted, he, he wanted to be efficient. He had come up with this theory in the offseason, and he was dead set on three pitches or less, I'm going to be done with that batter, for better or worse. Well, they, uh, so he didn't walk many people. And uh, so they were, they were playing the Yankees, and it was the first inning, and, I mean, he just, through strike after strike, and I think they scored a bazillion runs off him in the first inning or something. And I mean, he was just batting practice that yeah. day. I mean, it was yeah. just everything was there, and the Yankees, who he'd had trouble with in the past, just hammered him. And so I asked, um, all I asked, and maybe I didn't phrase it properly, because sometimes when you're in the lock, post game locker room, you're on deadline, you're just trying to get your thoughts out and get your quotes and get your analysis and go write your story. But I, I just asked, I said, you know, you have this theory about the three pitches or three pitches or less. And so clearly you want to throw a lot of strikes. But would would it not be beneficial to maybe throw fewer strikes and work off the plate and, and uh not, you know and uh I I phrased it a little bit differently, but uh he just looked at me and he goes and he just had this disgust in his eyes and he's you want me to throw balls? And I'm like, no, I just said, you know, maybe you work off the plate. Maybe it's been, maybe would it be beneficial if you threw just fewer strikes? I mean, because they seemed to know that you were going to be around the plate tonight. And it had been an issue in other starts. And I had asked Brad Ausmus the same question. And Brad Ausmus, by the way, agreed with me. And, uh, but David Price did not agree with me um, and really um, let me know it and um, really never talked to me or never answered a question of mine the rest of the time in Detroit. I mean, what, how does that work? It was I mean, just so, you're up it there was so asking, minor, but he took it so offense to it. Well, he's very sensitive, and yeah. that's been the well, track Well, and it's record. clearly been proven I mean, with the run-in he had with Eckersley on the team playing in Boston, which was a joke. And so it's clearly been proven he has, you know, some thin skin. Um, so he didn't like it, and he never really spoke to me again. How does that work, though? You're asking him a question, and he just uh, pretends not to hear you? I mean, right. how does, I mean, he just, you know, he just turns his head or is like, I'm not going to even acknowledge you. Yeah. So, was he the toughest cover you had there in terms of uh, your relationship with? Uh, no, Prince players? was tough. Prince Fielder? Yeah, and it's not that Prince was a, a jerk necessarily. He just was really tough to crack. Like, he just, he just wasn't interested in talking, and even if it was about mundane stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, some guys run when the, and don't want to talk when the, when the topics get serious and, you know, when the teams in the thick of a playoff run and it's a lot of stress and pressure and, and they lose a game and whatever. And a lot of guys don't want to talk after that, but he just didn't want to talk about anything. It was really weird. It's a weird I guy. Thought, it was weird because I thought this whole Detroit thing could have been a real good story for him, you know, I mean, coming home to where he grew up, but it was always weird from the beginning because of his relationship with his dad and it didn't make sense that he would come back to Detroit, but they threw enough money at him that he came back to Detroit. So, he was just weird. Uh, it's not like they disliked him. I just he was just weird. He was tough to crack. I was Delman never, Young was a jerk. Delman Young was a oh, jerk. Everyone, Delman Young, Delman Young. No, he was a jerk to everybody though. It didn't matter if you were a, a player, if you were a clubhouse attendant, if you were media, if you were anybody. 
Delvin Young was not not friendly at all. He was one of the most miserable people. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I saw Dimitri Young. Yeah, I, I, and Dimitri I mean, Young is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Well, I was going to ask you because I saw Dimitri Young after a spring training game in Lakeland. I want to say 2002 ish. You know, I was still in high school for sure at the time. He f bombed a little kid going up to him asking him for an autograph. Yeah, and just said get you know get the get the fuck <laughs> away from me basically. Well, we also know that Dimitri had some demons that he dealt yeah. with during his career. But I'll tell you that that was my only experience with yeah, him. Yeah, well, and you know what? Um, and I've heard people have bad experiences with a lot of athletes. And, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes you catch an athlete on a bad day. You catch me on a bad day. You know, you're gonna think I'm a jerk too. You know, and. Uh, a lot of people catch Nobody would say day. that, Tony. It's right. a terrible, terrible thing to uh, say. But Dimitri is, I've dealt with him a lot on post-career and a fantastic, genuine person. And his brother is just, if you ask, not, any, not media, so. if you ask any media member and if you get any, any teammate, to be honest, you, know, you would not get very many friendly stories about Delman. I once heard a story that, um, heard a story that he, you know, because the clubhouse attendants, the clubbies, um, you know, they run errands, too. They don't just do the stuff in the clubhouse. So, like, they'll run errands for guys to, you know, take their dry cleaning in or whatever. I heard a story from a clubby once that Delvin Young had this clubby take him or get him Starbucks every day for, like, a whole year, for the whole season. And uh, Delvin Young never paid for a single one of the Starbucks. So, the clubhouse, it's, it comes out of the clubhouse attendant's pocket for a whole year buying Delvin Young Starbucks. I mean kind of person and he was not a fringe like i mean he had he made several million he made, dollars he made a career. lot of money he yeah was a former number one overall pick. right i mean he made right. a ton of money yeah uh but even even the guy who makes minimum salary is going to pay you for his coffee i mean it's just it's, now he had a thing like he didn't he get like arrested, in, arrested new in new york for new york. like yeah. like a, he yelled like a gay slur at somebody or something a, it might have been an anti-semitic thing it's anti-semitic yeah. i couldn't remember if it was yeah. a, an anti-gay thing or yeah, an anti-jewish yeah, thing it was not funny but um I, I've dealt with cops a lot, cop stories. My dad was a cop, so I, growing up as a journalist, I, I kind of knew how to deal with getting information from police. But when this happened, and it broke like overnight, so I get a call from my boss at like 7 in the morning. Um, Delvin Young and something is arrested, whatever, you know. So I don't know where to begin trying to track down the people in the New York Police Department, which has a bazillion precincts, like. So I just start cold calling all the precincts to see, you know, if they've arrested Delvin Young. And it just so happened that the second precinct I called, the lady on the phone's like, oh, yeah, he's here. He's under arrest <laughs> in this precinct right now. <laughs> so out of like hundreds of precincts I called, I was just going down the list, and I happened, the second one I called, they had him in custody. Yeah, that happened. He also threw the bat at the umpire, you know, early in his minor league career. I mean, not a good dude. No. I mean, not a good dude. What's your take? I mean, I last covering that old team, I mean, covering Cabrera, there have been reports, and I don't think any of that came from you, of him having issues in the clubhouse, behavior, and, and you know, inappropriate, making comments. It's just, it's been kind of loosely reported over the years that he's, you know, just acted like a jackass, walked, walked in naked when he knew female reporters were in there and made comments. And it's just been kind of out there for a long time. What was your experience with him? Um, Miguel, those things happened. I mean, Miguel, um, has always been a, a childlike personality uh, in that um, he can be the happiest person in the world um, and he can be the, the most, he, he could throw tantrums and, in, a, in a way. Um, so I'm sure those things happen. Um, I don't think I ever saw any of them personally. Uh, I think it might have been earlier in his tenure uh, when he was particularly young. Um, I've always gotten along with Miguel, uh, and not like we're close or anything, because we're not. Um, and I've written some stories about Miguel uh, on his personal life, and um, and even and and uh, the one with the with the child and the paternity and stuff that was written over an off season. And so I'm like, well, this is going to be interesting when I see Miguel for the first time at Comerica Park, and what what's his reaction going to be, and um. He's always been very cordial, very nice to me, even after that. Like, you know, like the first time I saw him after that story ran, I saw him in the clubhouse, and he knows who I am. Because um, I wrote, I, ended up, I actually wrote a cover story for American Airlines magazine, of all things, on Miguel Cabrera. So, he, I mean, he knows who I am. I mean, I've been around. So he was, he's been very nice to me. I've always gotten along with him. But he's a child. He's very much 
Uh, and that's cool when he's on the field and he's interacting with the fans, like that fan in Cleveland when he, you know, when the fans yelling to him and the young fan and he's yelling back and he gives him his batting gloves. And there's so much good that comes with Miguel at, acting like a child because it's just, it's a, it, you know, people like to talk about the youthful part of the game and it's baseball, it's a kids' game. Uh, but it also flips side, you know, he can turn very, very, um, yeah, very angry and in a hurry and, and, and tantrum in a way without, you know, um, going off. But it just, he can flip like that, like a child can. So he, I think that's just his persona. Uh, I've always gotten along with him. I've never had issues with him. Fast forward to, you know, we're back in present day. We talked about Chris Illich and whether or not we're buying that he's ever going to get this together and keep his word on his end of the deal. I have long expressed skepticism that even if Chris Illich keeps his word, we are at the uh, at the mercy right. of your buddy Al Avila, who he's the most media friendly GM in the history of sports, probably right. I mean, less could, so than he used to be. You could call him right now, and he would he would go on the air with us. I bet. I uh, bet he would. Probably not, but he, yeah. would, he would take my call, but Fort, he wouldn't go on the air with you. You don't think so? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> if you asked him to, I bet he would. Maybe. He is the most media friendly, which is a good thing, I guess. I mean, I don't know. There's something to be said for being a little bit more of a poker player, too, but right. he, he's not that. I mean, he's uh, cards out on the table. But what I said is that even if Chris Illich is the one that's going to come through and, and spend money, at least at a moderate level, do we want Al Avila to be the one to make these decisions? Because right. we have seen him with deep pockets once. And what did it yield? Mike Pelfrey, two years, $60 million. Mark Lowe, a ridiculous contract. Right. The worst contract in Detroit sports history, Jordan Zimmerman. Yeah. So we've seen him with deep you think pockets. That's the worst contract in Detroit? What's worse? What's worse? I don't know. The Prince Fielder one was pretty bad. Prince Fielder produced for a couple of years on that, did he not? Yeah, he did, but it was still pretty bad. I'm not saying it was they were, good. They're paying him. I mean, they were paying him into retirement. Not saying it was pretty bad. Not saying it was good, but you got two really. You got, you got production. You got two well, years yeah, of production. Yeah, one yeah, year, yeah. really good production. He that. played. He contributed to a World Series team, so he won a pennant in part because of him. And you still uh, traded some of that contract. I know they had to eat some of it for Kinsler, who contributed to some decent right. Tiger teams too. I say, I, not saying it was good. No, no. I, I'd say the Zimmerman one was a. Obviously, a complete bust. But I bet if you looked at it, if you looked in Detroit sports, you'd find some other bad. I chop, bring it. I will, yeah, find some other bad contracts. You won't find one worse than that. I, I've with, with how this. bad he's been up. Yeah, I mean, he, he's unusable. It was, a, it was a bad signing. That was a bad signing from the get go. I don't think there was anybody. I would hope not. Uh, that was waving the flag of, of celebration over Jordan Zimmerman because I mean his analytics were sharply on decline when they signed him. That was a bad deal from the get-go, but it has turned out to be a disaster. It reminded me of like a worse version of the Dontrell Willis deal when you know they first traded for him, and like him. all his numbers were down. Right. It's like here's three years and thirty six million. It's like right. why? Like where's the fire on re-signing him? Right. I, I mean, he was a that mess. Was a bad one. Terrible. Yeah, and this yeah. was worse because it was you know double the term and triple the money. Right. But uh, anyway, okay. I think it's the worst contract ever. You think it's well? One no, of, it, you know, you it think might, it's a it great be, contract. It, it, it might be. Um, it, it's one of the ten worst. It does. It, it's, we're, it's we're, up there. We're, it's, we're in the weeds it's here. It's turned into a disaster. It's bad. Yeah. The point is that he was bad with the money. I don't care whether it's the worst contract, the fifth worst contract. It doesn't matter. We're, we're getting lost. The point is he was an absolute nightmare mm. when he had money to spend. We've talked about Chris Illich. We don't know if he's going to spend. We've seen Al Avila, I think, acting competently. He totally misplayed the Michael Fulmer hand. He has completely botched Matthew Boyd completely botched, where you had reports on CBS, you had reports on ESPN, you had reports all over town, every reputable baseball source there is, saying that teams were knocking on the door for Matthew Boyd last year in the middle of the year when he was his numbers were through the, the roof. He was, a, he was a phenomenal, one of the five best pitchers in the American League. Everyone was trying to get him. And the report comes out that he's asking for Glaber Torres, a 22-year-old budding superstar shortstop for the Yankees, who's under team control to the, like 2035. It was an insane valuation of his player. Anyone with a brain, I was banging the drum. Pull up the tweets, Tony. Banging the drum saying, trade him, take what you can get. Mm-hmm. His, his two months was a total outlier from everything he had done. He's 28, 29 years old. Trade him, strike while the iron's hot. He didn't. Now Boyd is lost. He's a mess. Mm-hmm. I think we have, 
demonstrable evidence that Al Avila is a bad GM. He was bad with money. He's bad on a budget. He has miscalculated this entire rebuild from every step. And I am not going to give him credit. Oh, look at the farm system, the farm system. Farm system is ranked high because of Casey Mize, who anybody would have taken 1-1, because of Spencer Torkelson, who anybody could have taken 1-1. I could have the Diet Coke can in front of you manage that team and have them finish last place and then just take the top-rated guy on the board. You don't get credit for that. A monkey could do that. I'm not giving him credit for that. I will give him credit when he starts hitting on second, third, fourth round guys when he signs somebody that pops out of nowhere. Like we saw Dombrowski make trades left and right. Right. That worked out. I, I, do you have any faith in this guy? I know he's your buddy. I know I know, I know I know I know you guys have, text every you day. Know, you should know that I don't have very very, very many buddies in the in the Detroit. Well, What's cuz you're not very nice to anybody. <laughs> That's why. You know, it's because you're a fair reporter. I think it would be a problem if you had friends. But I, right. I I'm teasing you. I'm just saying because he's so media friendly. He is media friendly. Um I have less faith in Alvila obviously than I did when he took over. I like I like him replacing Dombrowski for a couple of reasons. One, selfishly, we were going to have more access, obviously, to Avila than we had to Dombrowski. That said, Dombrowski would always return your call, too, but he just wouldn't give you any. Where Avila will give you some. Um, he'll, he'll let you know what he's thinking. Um, so that was, we, uh, we all were excited about that. Um, and I liked his, um, I liked his scouting background, um, and I liked the fact that he was, from day one was talking about analytics. So that's what, those are the three, three reasons I like the hire, and I like I, I had some faith from the get go. Um, and he, by the way, did. And we we've talked about this before. He did pull the trigger on a couple of Tigers trades under Dombrowski. It wasn't all Dombrowski making those trades? I mean, uh, Avila got Fulmer. I mean, that was his trade. So I mean, it's not like he has never made a trade in his life. Now. Um, I would I, I have much less faith because again we haven't seen him really hit on any free agents the Pelfrey the Mark Lowe debacle um, the Zimmerman up you know Upton Upton was fine the the problem with all that with the Zimmerman and Upton stuff was that that should have been the start of the rebuild that off season they shouldn't have spent the money on any of the guys that should have been the beginning and then they it was Michael Itch's last shot to you know throw a little bit more money and see if we can catch lightning in a bottle. And so they didn't start selling off those pieces till the summer of that year. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have, I have much less faith because, like you said, they haven't really hit. I mean, the, you can talk about the farm system, and you can talk about the schools, and you can talk about the Mannings and the Burrows and the Mize. And all. You can talk about all that until you're blue in the face. Until some of these guys start producing at the major league level, um, you can't give them credit for that. I mean, because you're right, Mize would have been taken by 29 other GMs, and and so would Spencer Torkelson. So. Um, yeah, you have to start producing, and he hasn't really done that. Um, the Boyd stuff, um, I would agree that obviously you go and you try to get what you can for Boyd, but the problem is when you say get whatever you can, well, then you have this other sector of the audience that you know bitches every time you make a trade and you don't get enough. I don't care about the stupid sector. I'm, the stupid sector was mad about the Isaac Paredes trade, saying he didn't get enough for Al Avila. And, Isak Paredes, we found out, by the way. And he, by the way, he had a grand slam. Yeah, he's uh, been phenomenal. He, yeah, um, in the minors, but it was, they should have traded Matt, Matthew Boyd. There's okay, no question. Good. Okay, thank you. There's no question. If you get a if you get a good enough deal, if you you know, I'm not saying you trade him for two, you know, non ranked single A prospects. No, okay? nobody said that. No, you got to get something for him. There's, you have to also understand that if the guy doesn't have a track record and he has one good year, you're not going to get the cream of the crop. The Fulmer stuff, the trade with the Fulmer, and I've had this argument before. In hindsight, they should have traded Michael Fulmer. At the time, when people wanted to trade him, at the height of his rookie of the year season or in that offseason, I, I would ask people, well, what do you hope to get in return? Because at that point, you would hope to get in return Michael Fulmer or a guy who turns into what Michael Fulmer has looks like. Now, the injuries later, you know, of course you would have traded Michael Fulmer, but I would not have traded him at that time. Boyd, of course, because he had no track record. And he wasn't, it wasn't some stud prospect that came up that everyone was, you know. No, Fulmer, I, Fulmer, I think is much more defensible. And yeah. I, I don't get, I, I think it was mishandled, no question. 
But you know, I, I get the, the hindsight thing, aspect. You know, the good point someone made to me the other day when I was arguing with him about Fulmer, because he thought that they should have traded Fulmer, and I said, well, I think that that's a little short-sighted because, again, you're going to trade for prospects, and you hope that one of those prospects turns into a guy with the upside of Michael Fulmer. So what are you trading for? His argument was the Tigers weren't close to contending yet, and so therefore that's why you make that move, which I thought was a fair point. Because, they were, you know, because I told him, I said, well, if you're saying you should trade Michael Fulmer at the height of his value when, after his rookie season, then that means that you would have been fine trading Justin Verlander after his rookie season, and that would have been insane. Yeah. Well, his, but then he's like, no, the Tigers were contending then. They weren't about to contend under the early days of Fulmer. So I think that that's a fair point. I still wouldn't have done it, but I thought that was a fair point. I, I, I can lay down the Fulmer thing. I'll lay down the sword on that. I don't like, yeah, I would have moved him, but I, I understood why they didn't at the time, and I don't think it's egregious. I get that. The Boyd thing's egregious. Yeah. It's too late now. And, and no one Slightly. ever said, it's the straw man stuff that people do. I swear to God, I want to strangle somebody, Tony. It, uh, oh, you can't just give away? You just wanted to give them away? Nobody said that. You would have gotten a top 50, top 60 prospect for them Probably. at minimum. That yeah. was out there. That Those reports were out there that teams were offering prospects in that range. Not my reporting. That was out there. Somebody just, uh, common sense, somebody would have given you the 60th best prospect in baseball. Right. For a guy that that was that hot, still had team control, you weren't going to get Glaber Torres. Right. You weren't going to get a top ten and you guy. You wonder if he was the ask was so high because of his previous trade and how perceived little return he got in the JD Martinez deal and the Nick Castellanos, Justin Verlander, and all these. You think he's in his own head now? Maybe, maybe that's why he, all of a sudden he's got this chip and now he wants to make a splash and it didn't happen. I don't know. Well, he blew if it. You, if you get burned before, maybe you'd, you know, reverse course and try to make up for it with another deal. So maybe. now now we got a GM that's scared and stupid. And so I'm that's not saying nice. that. Now, look, I'm not saying that. Alavio knows way more about baseball than I do. I'll, I'll say that right oh. off the bat. He does. Oh. I mean, he's yeah. been around the game, but yeah. some people are better. Um, it's like in, in, the NF, in football. There are a lot of guys who are great assistant coaches who, when they become head coach, doesn't really pan out. And maybe they're better served as assistant coaches. And I wonder if that's the case with Alvio. Because I think he was a good lieutenant. I think he did handle things well under Dabrowski. Um, maybe he wasn't meant to be the guy. Sorry. Yeah, maybe he, he's, he's a good lieutenant is a good way to put it. I mean, the, the bottom line is the results speak for themselves. He's botched one it thing hasn't after been another. Good. There's no question. I mean, no. you can't really point. Uh, I mean, except for this offseason, I guess. You could give him credit for scope and chrome, but. Those weren't deals to put you over the top. They were deals to plug in major league players while you, you know, groom some minor leaguers. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah if you, you can't really point to very many moves um, that have necessarily worked out. And until we start seeing these guys from the minors, and by the way, these pitchers aren't all going to pan out. I mean, they have a lot of them. They need some of them to pan out. They're not all going to pan out. But until we see some of these young guys, um, and, and some position players down there um, actually come up and pan out, then, you know, you're going to have a hard time, you know, believing that Alavila is the guy for the job. But he got an extension last year, which was stunning to me when Chris Illich announced that. Yeah, well, um, he was everyone stunning. else, too. Stunning to everybody. Yeah, yeah. And, that is, and that's where you look at Illich and go, wait a minute, you know. Clearly, there's a lack of the fire from his father there because – I mean, Avila got a five-year deal to turn this thing around. Um, if you get near the finish line of the rebuild and you see some of the fruits of the labor, then of course you extend a year or two. Like, that would have happened this year if you see the progress. Yep. But it happened last year when there was no sign that they were close. It was just bizarre. And no one understands it. And I don't understand a thing that's going on there, frankly. But I It was very strange. It, it, it came out of nowhere. Chris Illich didn't speak. Like, he... It was weird. Chris Illich announced it and then sent Avila in front of the reporters. And we're just like, uh, why did you get an extension? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was literally our so first question. Like, why did you get an extension? And it was unfair to Avila. He has to answer these questions by himself. Chris Illich didn't even take questions. Just shoves him out the door. Yeah, yeah go, like, go talk to yeah, him. Yeah, you get an extension and your punishment is you have to take this on your own. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, if I review, I'd probably take the deal. It's still better than he deserved, probably from a business standpoint. But yeah. you shouldn't have gotten yeah. an extension. They should have waited on that. Hey, this but, would, I think, this would be. You got a five-year deal. What was it? August of fifteen. So this would have been coming up on five years. 
So, um, look, that's whatever. It just it didn't make any sense. And, no, and they didn't tell us how long the deal is, too, which is very weird. It's been a bad five years for the Tigers. It's been it's a been rough. really bad week for sports announcers everywhere. The Twitterverse is mad at everybody. <laughs> there have been two examples in, what, like 72 hours? Tom Brenneman announcing for the Reds. Uh, did you hear this clip, Tony? I think you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, dropped a, a gay slur. It had a hot mic. Didn't realize he was on. And we, he, we said, he said it was about Kansas City, right? Yeah. Yeah. And oh, the blank capital of the world. Yeah, yeah. The, Which uh, I've been to Kansas City, and uh, speaking as a gay guy, I, I don't think that that's true. Yeah, well, I can't speak to that. I've only been to Kansas City once. I didn't. I didn't notice anything that yeah, <laughs> glaring. Yeah, great barbecue, I guess. But yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, that, that's good to know uh, yeah. coming from the expert here yeah. and everything. But uh, yeah, having not been there more than once, I can't speak to that. But yeah, it's funny. Mike Bilberry, uh, Mike Milbury shoves his foot in his mouth too with this, uh, you know, women kind of nagging you thing at the NHL. I don't know if you caught that too. Yeah, I heard about it. I was reading actually about that in the way over. Yeah, Mike Milbury, just no, the poor guy just said, everyone hates that guy. I've never, he's like the most vilified announcer ever. I hate to say it, probably justified, but he's calling that the hockey game and uh, he's saying, yeah, you know, these guys are in the bubble in Toronto. It's great. They can really focus on hockey. There's no women here to bother them and, and distract them. And the women's hockey verse like you know my friend katie strang a fellow michigan state alum just lost her mind which i get i i just the tom brenneman thing obviously you know you're it was mark grace too he got suspended for a little bit people are dropping like flies around here broadcaster i think he made some comments about his ex-wife or something i don't i don't think it's is it fair to call you a liberal tony is that like you're you're uh, on the you're of the left right yeah of course so you're you're of the left Uh, you're a gay baseball writer openly gay like everyone knows you're gay Mm -hmm. not a secret not a secret this is a big story, you know, nationally. It kind of crosses a, a couple paths for you. You know, Tom Brenneman, the last I saw was tentatively suspended. I know he, he was yeah, kicked off the air so for the bad. NFL, so he's off the NFL broadcast. It's sort of pending an investigation. I don't really know what there is yeah, to investigate. Nothing, yeah. <laughs> like it's, it happened. I mean, unless you, the theory is that he has like a secret anti-gay cult that he's running on the side that they're trying to uncover. I think we pretty much have all the facts in the case. Yeah. Like, do you think is there any coming back from that from Tom Brenneman? Like, hey, as just as a gay guy in the baseball world, like, yeah. do, you, do you want this guy to burn, or is he? Is there any redemption I don't want for him to, to burn? I mean, I, I don't. You know, frankly, I don't care if he loses his job or not. It's it's of no interest to me. Um, the, uh, and his apology was fine, and you know, he gave the it was one of the most awkward apologies in the history of the world. He gave it live on the air. And in the middle of it, Nick Castellanos, it's a home run. It's the most unbelievable clip. <laughs> it was just the most you have to go see bizarre it, thing. Um, and his apology was fine. And he felt, you know, he said, this isn't me. And everyone always says it's not me. Well, if you say it, it is kind of you. And the problem I had with it more, I mean, obviously the word is disgusting and despicable. But another the bigger problem I had with it is if you watch the clip. And I, had, I, I saw on Twitter. That, oh, my God, Brenneman said this thing. And then, so I'm like, oh, wow, he must have just got caught saying it on a hot mic. And I figured, like, you know, he would, he would be whispering, you know, the word. And, you know, that's what I expected to hear. But then he, like, I went to the video, and he said it with such conviction and such confidence that, you know, one, he's comfortable saying that word around his colleague. Yes. Which also means... Two, he's said that around his colleagues before. And so if there's no hot mic, there's no way this is ever going to get out, and it wouldn't be a story because his colleagues are clearly comfortable listening to him say that. That was a bigger problem for me. Um, and then he comes out and you, you know, with the apology, this isn't me, it's never been who I am. Well, if you listen to the clip, you're pretty damn sure that is who he is because, I mean, when you say something that confidently and all the your colleagues are in the truck, they're in the headsets. I mean, you got a bunch of people you're working with, and you clearly are comfortable saying that around them. That means you've done it before. And so that, the, you know, it, it, the Reds can do what they want. I mean, I don't care if he, I mean, I don't care if he loses his job. I don't have any strong opinions on him, on him as a person. But um, if, the, if you really look at it, um, he, he was way too comfortable saying it. That that was what bothered me more than anything. It uh, didn't. Yeah, it was not a slip. The no, fact that, like, no. that's and that's you know something probably worthy of distinguishing. I I think I kind of fall right in the middle. Like, on, like for instance, like all right, 
you, you know, you, you hear a player athletes using that word in the heat of a game. Okay, it's never, it's not right. But I would under, I understand that more than what right. Kobe, what, Kobe got hit for it pretty hard too. Than what yeah. I, than, than what this, I yeah. understand that. Um, you know, in the heat of a moment, you could say some stupid things. It's never right. But compared to to this, where it was just like casual conversation, like a word he uses all the time, that's what it sounded like. That's different. So that that really bothered me. I, I'm in I'm in the middle on a lot of things, and I haven't really meditated enough on that one. But I I, I think there's so much like to say. Everyone talks about cancel culture, cancel right. culture. I absolutely believe that there has to be some pathway to redemption for people that make mistakes in this regard, make mistakes. Uh, you know, I got in some trouble with uh, people um, on your side of the aisle. I consider myself a moderate uh, with the Ellen stuff saying, like, look, I don't know if all the stuff is irredeemable. I think if you're committing a crime against a child, if you're, uh, you know, sexually assaulting someone, I don't think there's really any coming back from that for me oh, in my no, eyes. No. I think if you uh, make an inappropriate joke in front of a woman or something, I think it's wrong. I think you should be reprimanded. I think that should be corrected. I don't think your career should be over if you say, hey, looking good in that dress or something. Like, shouldn't say it at work, not excusing it. Probably shouldn't lose your whole career over it if, you know, you correct the behavior. So I would, as a general rule, excluding crimes committed against people or perpetual behavior where you're terrorizing somebody or something like that, as a general rule, I like to see people get another chance, come back. And if the behavior is repeated, then, okay, that's, that's different. I, I'm of the opinion that there's not a single person on this earth, at least not that I've met, that hasn't at one point said or done something that had a camera been rolling, they would be done. Oh, yeah. I put me in that boat. I put you in that there's boat. No question. I haven't heard you say anything in front of me, Tony, no. but I'm guessing you have. Yeah. No, and, there's no question. Yeah, in a bad moment or whatever. So, you know, I, I err on the side of, of not ending people's careers. Well, but that's why, like, I don't. If he doesn't lose his job, I'm not going to be upset about it. You know, um, I think that his, uh, I think that his apology and the whole "this is not me" thing is bullshit. Um, I just don't. <laughs> that's believe, okay to say too. I yeah. just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Um, that's me. Um, but it's not my place to say if he should lose his job. I'm like whatever, I don't care. Um, you know, look, I, I tend to I, the cancel culture is troubling in on many levels because it's tough to weed out like it's like what where is that line you know um and in this era this day and age uh it seems like everything you know everything leads to cancel culture and and so it's like where is that line there's been broadcasters who've come back so i want to wrap with with this and this is what i think i I had to take i I didn't ask you if i could swear on you Oh, yeah. I apologize. Yeah, no, you can. My you bad. can. It's, yeah, this is like the FCC is now watching <laughs> us. So you, you can, you know, right. say enough. fuck shit or whatever you want. All right. um, so I, I want to wrap with this. And I was fascinated with your whole take on the Blackwell, D'Antonio stuff up, up in East Lansing. You were all over that story. You took a beating for being all over that story. I know you are sitting. Still am. Still are saying that we can get into that. Yeah. You're sitting in a studio surrounded by Michigan State stuff, which I know is tough for you because, according to everyone on Twitter, you despise Michigan State. There's pictures of D'Antonio all over the place. You want, you're out to get him. Mm-hmm. You hated him from day one. Yeah. This was Michael Rosenberg in the parking lot talking about Rich Ride. You, you had an axe to grind. You were ready to grind it. You hate Mark D'Antonio. You hate everything that is Michigan State, never mind the fact that you went there. And, I have a degree from there. And you have a degree from Michigan yeah. State. Yeah. So. Take us through it. You're covering the Blackwell D'Antonio story. I want you to talk, give a little bit about what that story was about for the people that don't know and your experience with the backlash from Spartan Nation with that, because I thought you were treated very unfairly. <coughs> well, obviously, uh, for those who don't know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long winding story if you haven't checked it out. Um, there's many components to it, but basically Curtis Blackwell was uh, brought in from the Detroit camp scene as like the the guy who knows all the Detroit prospects and so Danton, D'Antonio hired him and he came in uh, as a recruiting coordinator and Blackwell made all these great gets I mean he got one right up right away he was getting one prospect after another from Detroit to kind of commit and so it was this pipeline that he set up from Detroit high school fields right to East Lansing so for three years it was all roses and uh, you know gold stars for for that relationship between him and D'Antonio. 
And then uh, in January 2017, there was an off-campus party um, at the home of uh, a Michigan State running back uh, apartment. And uh, three football players allegedly, um, well, didn't allegedly, they had you know, some sort of sexual relations with a, with a girl in the bathroom of that apartment. Um, she alleged it was uh, non-consensual. They obviously disagreed. But anyway, that was the start of this whole uh, this whole story, which basically Blackwell served as a recruiting coordinator and he served as a mentor for the kids. That was kind of his thing. Like he was kind of the buffer between D'Antonio and the players as far as working with the kids and making sure they're on the up and up. Well, he had a good relationship with them. Basically what happened is that uh, after this whole investigation shook out from the party, Blackwell was accused of obstructing the investigation and not handling it properly, not reporting it properly when he was talking to the kids. Basically, the cops were accusing him of obstructing and covering up. MSU ended up accusing him of just not reporting. He was supposed to report to the office of, uh, you know, the OIE office and the MSU police. He didn't do that because he said other people had done it. Blackwell basically said he took the fall because he was black at Michigan State, which only one person did lose their job over this incident, and it was Blackwell. Um, D'Antonio has fired two assistant coaches in his entire tenure at Michigan State, Blackwell and an offensive line coach or something like that. Uh, and so that's kind of where it went, and it turned into this giant shit show in the court. And I tried to report um, as much as I could both sides, uh, not just off what I got in the court documents, but from interviews, hundreds of interviews, uh, people that you'll you never saw their name in the paper, um, and uh, it ended up uh, the end result was uh, that uh, Blackwell did not win his case, uh, but D'Antonio all of a sudden retired, which is weird. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I didn't get a lot of positive mail from the Michigan State community, but uh, you know, I thought I handled it as fairly as I could given the circumstances. It was newsworthy. And it was weird that I'm like the only reporter that gets hammered on this story, which was covered by ESPN, which was covered by MLive, which was covered by the Detroit Free Press, which was covered by The Athletic. But somehow I'm the only one that gets hammered on, on the reporting of it, which is fine. Well, I think I, you had I the, most the most thorough reporting. Report. Yeah, I was going to say you had the most. Reporting. I think I did the most thorough. But every, you know, the emails, this, I can't believe this is a story. Involved. It was a story in many media outlets. So. It, it is what it is. People ask me, what do you have against Antonio? Nothing. I've only met the guy a few times. I mean, we've never had a one-on-one interview. Um, I have nothing against Mark Antonio. Um, this was a major case that was playing out, and there were some legitimate questions to be asked on how Michigan State handled um, the, the investigation into that, that party. And then three months later, the a rape of Austin Robertson of a woman off campus. And then it brings in the whole Austin Robertson recruiting stuff, which raised some pretty damning questions about D'Antonio and his credibility and his ethics and morals when you have assistant coaches who begged him and pleaded with him and an athletic director who pleaded with him not to bring Austin Robertson on campus. And a year and a half later, he raped a girl. So there were a lot of, there was no one angle on the story. It just turned into this big web of, bunch of different angles ended up leading to NCAA violation allegations, which are still pending. Um, so it, uh, it gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of stress and headaches working on this story for a year and a half, two years, but, um, you know, part of the job. I have nothing against Michigan State or Mark D'Antoni. Well, in my position publicly, which you know, I know you saw, right. was it's newsworthy by definition. Journalism 101, you have a prominent figure suing a very prominent figure publicly uh, in a spat with them it's in court documents that's newsworthy yeah. by default yeah. that that is just the definition of newsworthy by any j school's definition of the term mm-hmm. and your reporting was simply i'm going to talk to both sides here's this side here's that side here's what the court documents say there was no editorializing on your part whatsoever i tried to find a reason to hit you on it i tried i tried to find a reason not to defend you because <laughs> I, I i didn't want i'll be honest i didn't want to get into that pool because the water was hot you were the only one in that in that pool, and the water was very uncomfortable in that right. pool. Yeah. But I got in the pool with you because <laughs> I thought it was wrong what they were doing to you. You're being railroaded by the Michigan State fan base for just reporting what's out there. 
and not making any judgments one way or another on who's telling the truth and who's not. I know you don't know for a fact because nobody but maybe three people do. Do you think that the Blackwell case, that whole incident, had anything to do with D'Antonio's retirement, the timing of it? It seems awfully odd if it's not involved. Well, it, the timing of it was strange given that um, just an hour earlier um, we reported about the NCAA allegation um, that came out as part of the court. And by the way, I just want to go back really quick. Um, people bitched it, you know, that this isn't news and I can't believe you're slinging all this mud and whatever. They have no idea how much stuff I left out of the paper. Okay. There was a lot of decisions there, made. Is anything going to be shared here? No, no, you can't share it here either. No, but there was a lot of decisions made. So there was, it wasn't like I just took everything I got from all the sources. Yeah. And by the way, I did have some sources on both sides. People think that it was just one side. The Blackwell side was more willing to talk publicly. The D'Antonio side was, the D'Antonio side was very much, we don't do this in the media, but then the D'Antonio side would get pissed off when the media would report what the other side was saying. Yeah. Well, you have your option to speak here too. So. Yeah. And which they did run to MLive once. They wouldn't talk to me, but they got mad at something I wrote off the other side, and so they ran to MLive and gave them an interview. But that's neither. That's, that's what lawyers do. Um, he resigned just like 45 minutes after we originally posted the story, I think, about the NCAA allegations, which, by the way, were not huge allegations. They were an allegation that he and Blackwell were in the house of a recruit at the same time. Yes, that's a violation. Not Mount Everest, you know. Uh, there was that D'Antonio might have helped get employment for parents of recruit. Well, that's not great. We know that Harbaugh's done that before. I mean, it's, it happens in college athletics. They're not huge things. Um, so the short answer to your question of no, he didn't resign over the case, over the reporting or anything like that. Uh, but it was a part, it was a factor. It was part of a big ball, if you will, of reasons why he, I think, walked away. I think that, uh, first of all, his program had gone downhill. Uh, the recruiting had dried up. Um, there was, it was, I mean, a lot of headaches that he was dealing with. Um, you knew that it was going to be a few years before they are good again, at least, and that's if you recruit well. Um, and so on field, I think, was trending very much downward. Um, he's not a young man. I mean, he's not an old man, but he's not a young man in terms of a guy who's had a heart attack that ages you. Um, I think that he was looking at that. And look, he got a $2.5 million bonus or whatever it was to stick around until January 15th. So. Um, I think that all the I think that all the on field stuff had worn on him, and um, I real I think you know he he made that weird comment in November or October where he said I'm going to be back and I'm going to finish what I started and I'm going to finish the circle, and I'm like, but that's not a one year thing; it's like a four year thing if yeah, you're actually going to finish it. And so I thought that was strange, and I think what ended up happening was that I think he started realizing that it was probably going to be a four year thing. He wasn't going to be able to offer that. Um, physically, mentally. Um, so I think the on-field stuff was trending so down. And then the off-field stuff was piling up. I mean, I think that the lawsuit was certainly a headache for him, at the very least. I mean, he was being, he's being sued. Um, you know, he's having to give depositions. Uh, it's in the papers. You know, he's got, a, there was a, he's got a segment of the fan base that's not happy with him. It wasn't all you know, supporting D'Antonio on this stuff. I got many emails from people at Michigan State who said, you know, appreciate your reporting on, you know, all this and whatever. So I think if you take it all, I think it just all wore on him, and I think he had enough. He knew he was getting his bonus. He knew he was going to get his golden parachute job in the athletic department, you know, stick around for a million bucks and basically do nothing. So he was set. He had, he has a unquestionably, um, very good legacy on field at Michigan State. Um, I think it was just time, and uh, it just so happened that it happened then. Um, but um, it was strange that it happened then. But I think it was just the whole ball was just a factor. It played a small factor of the case, but mostly I'd say it was the on field and the realization that this isn't going to be turned around soon, and I'm going to be 66, 67 by the time it is, and I can't commit to that.
Oh, there you have it. It's confirmed that Tony Paul despises Mark D'Antonio <laughs> and is happy that he's gone and doesn't have to look at his stupid face anymore. That's it's confirmed for Spartan Nation. So all right, Tony, we went over. I appreciate your time. Did we? Uh, well, you know, I, I try I try not to keep anybody for longer than forty five minutes, and you were so gracious with your time. Is that it? That was easy. I thought it was gonna be a lot harder. You thought I was gonna grill you? Yeah. It's funny, you should have seen Mike Sullivan when he was he was our first show with a new format and I mean, Sullivan knows like yeah, my history with uh, a certain blog in town that I used to say like not nice things about Mike Sullivan and some of his colleagues. So he's just like, hey, can we can we not go there? And I, you know, I'm try I said, I'm trying to be a changed man, Mike. So, yeah. uh, yeah, no gotcha questions, Tony. I think you did a great job and appreciate. Um, Thanks for having me to your beautiful studio. How long did this take you to build? It's been over the course of three years. So like piece by piece, and uh, we did a, a great job with our our friend Roberto, who's actually in his pajamas, as always, producing from home. Uh, I don't know. I think it was in Royal Oak or Ferndale or something. He's, he, he's in his boxers uh, with his laptop right now running this whole board from home. So shout out to Roberto. Thanks for producing a great show, as always. We are sponsored by the Michigan Peddler. Check them out, michiganpeddler.com. A really good company. They got like a million five-star Google reviews. Tony, maybe you and I can go for a bike ride when Corona calms down a little bit. And I know you're... What is Corona going to... Uh, tomorrow, let's call. It's, let's just make it tomorrow. Let's call it tomorrow. Yeah, so it's, it's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Well, well, we'll see what happens uh, after November with the election and stuff. I, I think that. Oh, you're one of those people that thinks it's going to go away November fourth. I buy. I buy the conspiracy theory. Yeah. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's, it's a political it's a political issue. Well, it is a political issue that doesn't make it fake. I know. I never said it was fake. Well, you call it a conspiracy theory. No, 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 no. I said I think there the restrictions will lighten when uh, the election comes. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think it's a legitimate thing that is being leveraged and leaned into strategically by both sides to fit their narrative and to well, fit I think their there's agenda. There's some of that, but I also think there's a whole lot that some we just don't it. know. There's uh, there's just a whole lot we don't know. That's and well, it, yeah. That's, and so if you don't know something, a lot of times you're going to err on the side of. Well, and that's fine. That's what I've been saying from day one, that there's no experts with a novel virus. We don't know. Nobody knows anything. And that's what we've been preaching. So anyway, Tony Paul. I thought you were going to ask me, by the way, today about, because we got into it a little bit about, you yeah. don't think that the news and free press should be charging for subscription. You want to get into that? Well, this will, we'll go in the overtime. I mean, yeah, you're, you're by right. By the way, you can go get us. Uh, we have this new thing. Uh, let me just explain it. Yo, t- yeah, tease it. Uh, go go for it. We have this new thing at DetroitNews.com and Freep.com. Where we've we've given you uh, about 25 years of a free trial subscription, and we decided that the trial run has ended, and uh, so we are now charging for what we call freemium content. So a lot of our in-depth stuff goes behind a paywall, and you can sign up at DetroitNews.com. It's right now three dollars for three months. It's a dollar a month. Uh, so just check it out, try it out. A lot of the good content is going to be behind that, and if this works, uh, you know then. It'll continue. If it doesn't work, we're going to have to try something else, which will probably be going, who knows, maybe we'll go to a full paywall or whatever. But we're trying something at DetroitNews.com, so just check it out. Give us your $3 for three months, not that much, and uh, you don't think it's, it's a good idea. I subscribed, but I yeah. subscribe because you it's made me $3 for three months. That's why you subscribe. I didn't say, no, I am not anti-subscription model. Right. What I said was I want to hear what you're going to do differently. Right. I can't be selling, I can't be giving you a piece of bread. Right for 25 years and then suddenly start charging you three dollars for the piece of bread without putting some butter on it or like baking the crust a different way mm-hmm. i just like give me something i'll say like once a week tony paul will come over and like deliver a cupcake to your house or something <laughs> give me give me something i'm not going else. to do that uh so yeah i hear i hear what you're saying but i also think that the newspaper industry is in some dire straits right now and uh we have to try something and um, whether it's doing this, whether it's going to a full paywall, whatever it is, uh, we have to try something. Because uh, as I put on Twitter, you know, people love to bitch about the newspapers and they love to bitch about the media. You will miss your newspapers when they're gone. And I'll tell you why. It's, um, if you lose your newspapers, and God love my friends in radio and God love my friends in TV. But if you lose newspapers, there goes most of your TV content. There goes most of your radio content. There goes most of your news. And uh, so newspapers are very vital. We're trying something here. Obviously, the coronavirus hit all industries hard. It hit the newspaper industry particularly hard um, with uh, ad rates, which were already dwindling, or ad, uh, ad buys, which were already dwindling. They severely started dwindling when uh, companies couldn't afford to buy them. So we're trying something different. Uh, but I hear you. Uh, you know, the newspaper industry screwed itself, all right, when the Internet came up. 
the newspaper industry decided for some unbelievable reason when the internet was made that we're going to just give away our product that we're trying to sell you at the corner store. It made no sense then, but we, I think everyone was so excited about websites. And, oh, wow, we're going to have a website that they forgot that if you put everything on there, then there's no reason to buy your product. So uh, we screwed ourselves. There's no question about that. Uh, but we're trying to survive. And uh, so we're trying something. Um, I don't think this is the end of what we're going to be trying. I think there's a lot of ideas in the mix for all newspapers. I think MLive is, I think you're going to see them go to this eventually, some, some level of this. Um, but uh, if, you felt, if you like the news uh, sports coverage, which I, I would argue is some of the best sports coverage in the state, if not the best. Um, Free Press, some good sports writers too. But uh, if you like the coverage, you know, it's three bucks for three months, try it out. If you don't like it, you know, don't, don't renew. No big deal. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's worth uh, – we got to do something. It's worth is, it just for Tony is, Paul. This I mean, is their – exactly, honest. right? This is their way of trying something. It's uh, worth it for you, Tony. I, you know, and you got to try something. Well, you got to get off well, the Well, that's mat. the thing. You know, somebody made a good point the other day. I was reading on Twitter. This guy that travels, I think he's a doctor or something. And he loves, he said he loves reading the local newspapers um, whenever he goes to a new town. He loves checking out the local news. And, um, but now every local news site is starting to go to paywall. And obviously, if you travel over the country, you can't buy a thousand subscriptions. He made a point about coming up with some sort of like gold card where you basically buy this subscription for a year and it gets you access to a network of newspapers, which I thought was kind of interesting too. So. I think that newspapers are going to try a lot of different things in the coming years to survive. I think it's amazing that Detroit still has two newspapers, and I think it's great that Detroit still has two newspapers. So give us your three bucks, man. Go out and do it. Tony's, Tony's asking very nicely. He, sh- he shamed me on Twitter, and I did it. There so. you go. I think, I've, I think I've gotten about seven or eight subscribers so far, so it's 21 bucks. Well, we'll get a few more. Yeah. We'll get a few more. All so, right. All right, Tony. Appreciate it. You're the man. Thanks for having Ho- me on. I'd love to have you back. Did we scare you off? Are you no, going to come no, back I'll another come back. time? We've been do- I've been wanting to do this for a while, but it's been, it's been crazy times. And, uh, you know. You ran out of excuses, like you said. Yeah, no, so that's not- Yeah, yeah. You, you, I you never had- really made excuses. I just said no. Never seen so many. <laughs> uh, you said no, or you had, you had like 17 different uncles died. It was crazy. That's not true. That's yeah. a lie. You're making that up. Well, I, don't, it's, I, it's never, way better I would for never the use year. a funeral as a, as a reason. Okay. But you're making that up. Take it back. I gotta find your guestbook now, though. Yeah, sign my guestbook. Get yourself out of here. Get yourself home. Uh, Appreciate it.